This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCube, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. There are no words, not in English, Spanish, Arabic, or Hebrew, that have been invented to explain what it's like to lose a child, the nightmare heartache of it, the unexplainable trepidation that follows. The child may be gone, but the years the child was meant to live remain behind, solid in the mind like an aging ghost. The birthdays, the holidays, the last days of school, they all remain circled in red lipstick on a calendar nailed to the wall, a constant shadow that grows even in the dark. There are no words. Today on the show, I have the privilege of speaking to Natalie Beveridge, a mother who recently lost her child, Tiny the Mighty, but a mother who has also put all her focus and energy on honoring her son by inspiring hope. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Things Guy Jackpot today. Well, thank you, Brent, for having me. I've invited you because I know that your story has helped many parents and it will help many parents. You have found strength in Kieran's memory and started something in your own community that will that will live on forever, and maybe not even in your community, because it's, it's bigger than that. Mm. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about him? Yeah, so Kieran was a, a surprise. Uh, when we found out we were pregnant with him, we were a little bit thrown. But when he was born on the 23rd of November 2017, he was the most content, lovely, happy little baby, and uh, his his older brother adored him. And he just fitted into our family like it always belonged. So he never gave us any trouble. And I had big plans for him. You know, he was going to play golf with his dad and his brother. You know, we were going to get him into various things where we could give him a platform and make him successful, as any parent would. But uh, it wasn't to be. And I think it was the biggest shock to find out that my child was ill, and um, critically so. And, yeah, he lived a space of nine months, and we lost him on the 9th of September. He he got diagnosed with leukemia, which is at the official diagnosis. Yeah, so he was diagnosed on the 31st of July uh, with AML leukemia. We uh, were transferred to Donald Gordon Hospital, and uh, there were a whole lot of tests done to try and distinguish what type because there's eight different subtypes of this leukemia he had the second worst subtype and at nine months old when he was a breastfed baby um, his system was just so severely impacted Um, so we were at Donald Gordon he was then rushed to ICU at Garden City because he almost didn't make the first night after diagnosis and they stabilized him in Garden City but from day one we had to start with aggressive chemo it was a nightmare, and um, I often replay that in my mind. Um, you just you just don't believe it will ever happen to you. You live in a bubble. For our parents uh, that are listening, and either, even just people that are listening, what were the symptoms? Um, you have this little baby, a baby's cry. What were the symptoms that alerted you that something wasn't right? Well, it's a tough one because... What happens in childhood leukemias and cancers present completely differently in every child and every situation is different, and especially in infants. Not a lot is known around infant cancers, and um, 
Kieran, because he was thriving, because he was happy, he didn't cry a lot. He was meeting all his milestones. He was actually ahead on his milestones. Um, he was niggly uh, from about six months old. But we thought it was now it's the teething phase and we're trying him on solids and we're taking him a little bit of breast milk. So you go through all of these things, sleep progression, and you, you actually drive yourself mad trying to find out why is my happy, content little guy all of a sudden being a little bit clingy or needy. But it wasn't anything that was really you could put your finger on. And then in uh, June, July, he was ill and we were given the diagnosis that he had contracted swine flu the beginning of June, which I don't think was ever the case. I think what had happened was he had had the leukemia for some time, and by July, when he was diagnosed, um, his bone marrow and his white cells were just through the roof, and that's when he started presenting with a rash all over his body, um, and he was crying a lot and very niggly. And I was back and forward between the PED and um, you know the hospital, and it was actually my GP that picked it up, but it was a massive shock. I was under the impression it could have been bacterial meningitis, um, but you Google everything as a mother, and you think you're going mad. And people say, you know, don't be pedantic and don't stress, and, you know, it's fine, it's just a sniff, it's just a this, it's just a that. But I knew in my gut something was wrong. But one of the telltale things, which I didn't know at the time, um, he had developed a growth on his um, right calf muscle. But that little growth was tiny in around about May. And it grew eventually to the size of, I don't know, bigger than a five-rand piece in the space of a couple of weeks. And I kept on asking the doctors, is this not cancer? I've got a feeling that this is cancer. And nobody actually took that call seriously enough. And when I was saying, don't you think we should be doing blood work? That was never listened to either. No, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Turns out that was cancer. That was part of the leukemia. So yeah, um, the signs weren't really there, but in your gut, um, I had a feeling that something was wrong. Uh, whatever I was getting told at the doctors just didn't sit well with me because he wasn't actually getting better. And then the process started immediately, and um, and he was going through chemo from day one. What was that like? It's horrible because you almost want to press pause and say, I need a moment to breathe, and I need a moment to reconsider and talk to the family and get a second opinion. You want to say all of those things. But the doctors are looking at you like, if you don't start something now, your child's not going to make it. So you have to go with the opinion in the room at the time. And you just hope and pray that it's the right decision. Um, so, yeah, it, it was terrible. All control gets taken away from you. Um, and you just have to become completely vulnerable, open and raw. And you, you've spoken, uh, I mean, I've, off air when we were chatting, you are quite a control freak. Mm. So for this to, to basically hand over, that must have been trauma in itself. Well, I mean, I'd never spent a night away from Karen, and then all of a sudden he's in ICU at Garden City and I have to sleep in another room and he's a breastfed baby and they're not sure if he's going to make the first night and they're saying he must be on standby. So, yeah, it, it was awful. It was like a nightmare that you couldn't wake up from. And it was terrible to see what it did to my husband, what it did to my little boy at home. Um, my entire family disintegrated before my eyes. But we had to try and make the most of it, and we had to be open and receptive to people who wanted to help us and love us and be there for us. And that control freak personality of mine was thinking, no, I'm all in control. I realized I was so far out of my depth. 
I had to embrace other people. Otherwise, I wouldn't survive this. Dur- during that process and, and those six weeks, um, there was a lot of support. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of our listeners that are listening to this right now who, who found your story and heard about it and, and were following the story. Um, and you mentioned that, that there was food that was being delivered to your house and, and like huge support. Well, it was amazing. Um, I couldn't really respond to all the WhatsApps and the Facebook messages after we had told people that he had been diagnosed with leukemia and he's going to be in hospital for a period of that time. I was saying a year. I just had wonderful friends um, starting WhatsApp groups with the whole group of moms and saying, look, we're going to do like food drop-offs at Natalie's house so that there's a meal for every night when someone comes home, there's a meal. Um, We had flowers arriving at the house. It looked like a florist. It was beautiful, but I was hardly at home. We had people arriving with groceries just to fill up my fridge or doing lunch bags for my son. So when he went to school, his lunch tin was taken care of. We had little kids who were saving up their pocket money to buy Kieran a toy. And then they would give us the toy and we would give it to Kieran in hospital and we would film them playing with it. And handwritten cards. So, yeah. A lot of support. It was amazing, yeah. A lot of support. Um, Kieran's uh, nickname, Tiny the Marty. Yeah, where where did it come from? Where does that come from? So, my older son, Connor, um, when when Kieran was born, he didn't used to call him Kieran, he would call him Tiny. And he would say, how's Tiny Baby? It's my Tiny Baby. And then when Kieran got sick and he was in hospital, we realized that we lived for moments where we had hope because it was all-consuming. It was, it was like a nightmare. But you have to look for the light and you have to look for the moments that give you hope. And it was the tiny things. It was seeing his blood results improving after the first chemo treatment. It was seeing him smile or clap his hands or being able to take a bottle when he hadn't drunk anything for three days. So we realized that life isn't made up of the big moments. It's those tiny moments. So, I'm getting choked up. Um, We realized that Kieran's fighting this with the mighty spirit, but it's those tiny things that you need to appreciate. That's where Tiny the Mighty came from. Tiny the Mighty. And from that, um, Tiny the Mighty legacy has been born. Um, And you started uh, a blood drive, which, which was hugely important because during his process, he was getting a lot of blood donated to him. Well, what I realized is outside of friends and family that were trying to support us, we had a massive inflow of love um, and messages of support on social media. And a lot of these people I didn't know. And some were as far as India or America or wherever. And they said, what can we do? And I think people always feel so helpless when they hear a story of a child who's ill. And then they sort of scroll past it because they don't really know how to get involved and how to help. And I started saying, you know how you can help? Go donate blood. Because the day that Kieran got diagnosed and he was starting to go into cardiac arrest, his blood levels were all over the show. And they needed to do an immediate transfusion of platelets and red blood cells. And from the time they ordered the blood to the time the blood arrived, it was like probably about a six to eight hour wait. Now, when your baby is nine months old and every second counts, to wait eight hours, it's an eternity and you go mad. And this wasn't the first occasion. Kieran was getting um, transfused probably every two to three days and towards the end stages daily. So a good supply of blood and blood products will at least alleviate a lot of the pressure that families feel, but that hospitals feel when they've got critically ill patients and they need to get the blood to them. So when I started saying to people, go donate blood, 
I got the idea of setting up a blood drive in uh, Dane Fern Golf Estate. And uh, it was whilst Kieran was in hospital, we set this up. And we had such amazing support from the community and from people who heard about his story. And people who never, ever had donated blood before but thought it was something good to do now decided that they should go do this. It may not help Kieran directly, but there's plenty other families in the same position needing that kind of help. And that's that's something, and I call it a legacy because it is. You've continued with the blood drive, and it's it's something that's uh, on your calendar every two or three months. You're setting up these blood drives, not just in Danefern Estate, but all over Johannesburg. You've 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 solidly got yourself involved uh, with the SANBS, um, and it's important to you because you realised how important blood is. I think right now, um, right now, the the blood banks have only got three days uh, worth of blood and zero point two of Platelets, yeah. like, like you would know a lot more about this because because you're working with it now, um, and it's it's beautiful to see you taking it out there. Uh, you did the first blood drive, then you did the second one, um, and were they both well received? Yeah, they were very well received, and um, it was just amazing seeing how people came together, and they were such a lovely vibe and sense of community at the first blood drive. Um, people who hadn't seen each other in years all of a sudden bumped into each other, and they were donating blood. And they were right next to each other on the bed. Um, you know, and I had a lot of people come up to me afterwards saying, when's the next blood drive? Because it was like elections when you all stand in a queue and you get to know each other. And it was a really lovely day. It wasn't a sterile environment. And a lot of people who were needle phobic and thought to themselves, well, shit, I can't do that. They actually just put themselves in the position of what my baby had to put himself through um, with getting pricked and prodded and probed. And I thought, well, if a tiny little baby can try and, um, you know, survive and endure what he's enduring to fight cancer, they can at least donate blood. And, yeah, we've got a massive movement of people now that send me photographs of them with a needle in their arm, and they donate that blood in honor of Tiny the Mighty. How often can you donate? Uh, it's every 56 days. So, yeah, six, six to eight weeks. Six to but eight with weeks. platelets, um, you can donate every two weeks. And platelets are pretty key because um, they only have a five-day lifespan. But you have to get those platelets to the patient within 12 hours, and you have to keep those platelets moving. And that at least helps the, the blood clot. So at one stage, Kieran was really ill, and he was bleeding internally, and they couldn't stop the bleeding. To try and get those platelets to him from time of order to getting them into his body, we were waiting maybe five hours. And it's horrific. There's nothing worse as a mother not being able to help your child. Um, recently, we put out an article on Good Things Guy about uh, the blood drives and or, or collection because the SANBS are in dire need of blood. And, and the reaction on social media, um, it surprised me. It shocked me, actually. Uh, there were people that publicly, uh, also that's another thing with social media. People say things and they don't realize that their photo is there and it's connected to <laughs> their business and all these great things. But people publicly said, I won't donate blood because they sell my blood to hospitals. And we did a bit of digging and, and, and this is how you and I sort of arranged this interview because it's so important that people know, yes, there's a cost to getting this blood, uh, collecting the blood. The nurses need to be paid. Um, they, they then test all the blood to make sure that there's no diseases in it. They clean it. They separate it so they can get platelets. They store it, and then they deliver it to mm-hmm. whatever hospitals it needs to go to. That ha- that has a cost to it. So, so that's It's just, the service. You're uh, paying for the service. Uh, correct. Okay? You're not actually getting blood. You're not buying blood. You're paying for the service. It's the same as like 
you know, anybody would need who's, who's going to, like if you purchase water, it has to go through a purification system. You don't just get clean water coming out your tap. There is a, a cost involved. Same with blood. It needs to be cleaned. It needs to be separated. They need to make sure that the patient who's receiving that blood, that blood is safe for transfusion. Um, I mean, the SNBS have over 3,000 staff. You've got to pay these people, and sometimes they're running 24 hours. Um, they've got 80 donor centers across the country, and they run 21,000 mobile blood drives a year. Now, if you convert that into a daily rate, that's roughly, excluding public holidays, 80 drives a day. So it's the cost of setting up the drive, the cost of paying those people to come and take your blood. All the, all the equipment, the, all the, equipment. The, the needles and the bags and the, all of those things. And they need 3,300 units a day to try and avert a crisis in South Africa. Only 1% of South Africans are blood donors. So I think that number is actually really, really minuscule. It should be three or four times that. Agreed. Agreed. The other, the other thing that I found out when doing the research with re- regards to payments of blood or, or blood being sold to hospitals, um, we don't actually pay for it. So I know that there's a, there's a, there's a cost, mis- yeah. but if you're in a government hospital, the government pays for it. And if you go to a private hospital, your medical aid will pay for it. So you're not physically handing over any cash at any point to, to get blood. Um, and that's, that's 100% why I think it's so important to go donate blood. But it's, the SANBS is a non-profit organization. Um, and non-government. And non-government. So, you know, there is a cost involved, as you said, for the entire process. And I think a lot of people need to just educate themselves as to what happens from the time you donate blood to when it gets to a patient who is in critical need. Now, in 35% of the cases of who receives blood in terms of the recipients, it's usually medical cases, and a lot of those are cancer patients. Uh, most cancer patients at some point will require blood or blood transfusion, and that's just due to the ravages from chemo and radiation. Now, everyone knows someone who's got cancer or is fighting cancer or has lost someone to cancer. So don't think that, oh, it's always something I've wanted to do, because think about the person who's actually going through cancer treatment. At some point in time, they may need blood. Think about the mother who's about to deliver a child. Um, I think 20% of all blood that's donated goes to obstetrics and gynecology. Okay, and a lot of people know someone who's pregnant who's got a baby, you know, outside of ICU and traumas and car accidents. So, you know, it makes a massive difference. You're giving somebody the chance of another tomorrow. And I, I, I just don't think people understand the gravity of what they can do by just giving an hour of their time donating blood and saving up to three lives. Well, hopefully a conversation like this will give them that oomph to get off their chair and hopefully go and donate blood, whether it's at a center or your next blood drive, which is happening. Uh, the 23rd and 24th of February in the Danefern Golf Estate. We've called it the Tiny, the Mighty Blood Drive. It's between 9 and 3. But um, if you would like to come to that blood drive, I have set up an invite, and it's on Facebook, so I'm sharing it far and wide. Um, but there are a huge amount of blood drives happening in February. It is the month of love, so go show your love and give some blood. Um, and there's plenty. I mean, 1st and 2nd of Feb, there's um, drives happening at Greenstone Mall. Um, at Killarney Mall, Lone Hill Shopping Centre, and Dipslot Mall. So that's this coming weekend. Um, and there's a whole lot more. So I've got a list of all the drives happening in February. Maybe it would be worthwhile putting it out with the podcast where people can actually have a squiz through here and see where's the closest um, blood donation centre or drive and attend that and go and give blood. And if you want to do it in honour of my little boy, Tiny the Mighty, or in honour of anyone else who you know is going through a tough journey, and we'll need blood at some point in time, do it in honor of them.
Natalie, I love, um, I mean, meeting you and just getting to know you. Uh, your your heart is massive, and and you really I mean you've been through something that is incredibly traumatic, but you've taken you've taken it head on and and you've created something that is beautiful and and that will live on forever. They, I mean I I see how people post photos um, in honor of Tiny the Marty, and I think it's just something beautiful. Well, he had a big life to live. And he's not here to live it, so I'm going to live it for him. I love that. I, I'm not going to let you go just yet because there is another thing that I want to uh, quickly raise. And it's, it's you've joined your donations, uh, so your blood drives, with um, Cupcakes for Hope. Yes. So Sandy Cipriani, who runs Cupcakes for Hope, is also known as Cupcakes for Kids with Cancer. She reached out to me when Kieran was diagnosed. And she does some wonderful work with helping over 70 families uh, per month with financial um, costs uh, related to their child's care while they're going through chemotherapy and all the ravages of childhood cancer. And at the first blood drive that we did in uh, September, we had a um, gazebo with her cupcakes on it, and we were able to raise about 10,000 rand, and that money was then sent back to Cupcakes of Hope. And they usually have um, Cupcakes of Hope parties, and that's fantastic because it also allows people who are bakers but they're maybe not going to be donating blood for whatever reason. They could bake a batch of cupcakes and bring it down to the blood drive because we run the Cupcake of Hope party together with the blood drive, and at least they feel like they've contributed something. People then buy the cupcakes or give a donation for the cupcake. That then goes to Sandy, and that then goes to helping other families in very difficult situations. And, um, yeah, it's a fantastic organization. Um, she has National Cupcake Day on the 28th of September. Anybody who's got... Eggs, milk, flour in the cupboard could be a cupcake angel and bake cupcakes or host a cupcake party. And, um, yeah, you're going to see great things coming out of Cupcakes of Hope. And I'm going to continue flying that flag for her as well. I love it. You've taken two polar opposite CSI initiatives and you've literally married them. Well, I like cake. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and now people can come down to your blood drives. They can have their cake and donate blood, which is just fantastic. I want to thank you for giving up your time and, and coming to tell your story. Um, it's, it's tragically beautiful. And, and Tiny the Mighty will live on forever. Um, I'm coming to your next blood drive. I'm going to donate blood. It'll be my first time ever. I, I'm needle phobic. I am scared of needles, but I will post photos and videos of me doing it. And I'm going to do it in honor of your beautiful boy. Well, I'll hold your hand. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on thanks, the show. Thanks, Brent. And thanks very much for the opportunity. I'm Brent Lindeke, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. And you've been listening to Good Things Guy, a jackpot podcast. For more episodes or to subscribe, rate or review my podcast, go to iTunes, Iona FM or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks and only good things.